you can turn, I would encourage you to turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah in chapter 9. I want to welcome you again here this morning. And uh, I am <clears throat> excited to share from God's Word. We considered, uh, we have been considering the book of Nehemiah for the last couple of weeks. And uh, it's a tremendous book, a book that has uh, great doctrine, uh, the teaching of the Word of God. It also has some great principles that we carry over, uh, we certainly can carry over into the New Testament and apply to our lives um, as New Testament believers. It's a tremendous thing to be able to study the Word of God and to learn from it. It's living and powerful. Um, we know that it's good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, and it is indeed living. It gets into our hearts, into our souls, and it does a transforming work by the Spirit of God. And that's exactly what happened in Nehemiah. We left off uh, last week in Nehemiah, uh, really chapter 8 is all we covered. We ch covered chapter 7 and chapter 8 last week. And in chapter 8, if you recall, the uh, word of God was publicly read to the people of God by their request, and uh, it, it did a transforming work. The people were convicted of their sin. They began to weep. And it is, uh, it is a wonder and a tremendous thing to come under conviction by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, to be changed, right? Sometimes uh, you may hear someone say, well, that's just how I am when they've done something wrong or when they've maybe exploded uh, in, in anger. Well, that's just how I am. That's the way I've always been. But by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, we can be changed, right? We learn that from, from Romans 12, that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But there is a cooperation with the Spirit of God. And I want to present it to you this way, as I think this is how the, the Scriptures present it. Uh, there is, in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, deep conviction under the Word of God. Then we come to Nehemiah chapter 9, and we find sincere confession Sincere confession. So there's conviction, then there's confession, then we're going to go into chapter 11 and find out there's a renewed commitment, a renewed commitment. Sometimes we sit under the word of God, and I've been there many a times, I sit in your chair most of the time, and I come under conviction by the spirit of God, by the word of God, as the word of God's pre being presented. But the question is, so then what? Do I get up and walk out of the building? a convicted man, but not a changed man. And so when we see in Nehemiah, I think there's a tremendous principle that we need to apply to our lives. When the Word of God does a convicting work, there's a responsibility upon the people of God to respond to that conviction. And how will we respond? Nehemiah chapter 9. Number one, by confession. There needs to be a real, sincere confession. Sometimes I sit convicted by the Word of God, and it goes into my mind, it goes into my heart, and I say in a sense, Oh, Lord, that hurt. That hurt. But it's never translated into a sincere confession for my sins, for what He's convicted me of. I get up and I leave the building, and I, I, sometimes I forget all about it, and nothing happens. 
So I think there's a, 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 some principles laid out here, a process, if you will, that should be carried out. When you come under conviction, you should then, that should lead you to confession. And once there's confession, there should be a renewed commitment, right? We don't want to go back to the same thing. So what are we going to do practically in order to take steps so that we don't end up back there again in the same old sins again? I am only guessing, but I'm expecting, I'm thinking, based on my interactions with the leadership here, that those who come to them convicted about sin, uh, uh, under the burden of sin, feeling the consequences of sin, would be led through a process similar to this. Well, if you're convicted about it, then let's confess it. Let's confess it to the Lord. And once we've confessed it, let's talk about some things that we can do to make real change. We don't want to walk out of here unchanged. We don't want to come under conviction by the Spirit of God and never be changed. So let's confess it to the Lord. That's what they do in Nehemiah chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, there is this renewed commitment. They say these are the areas where we've been off, and here's what we're going to do to do our part. And so I think that is the process that's laid out here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9, you could say, uh, is a chapter of a fresh start, a new beginning. It is a tremendous thing to be able to have a fresh start. Have you ever wanted to have a fresh start in life? Done some things you wish you hadn't have done? Fallen away in one way or another? And this is true both for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and those who who maybe don't know him as Savior. God is a God of new beginnings. He's a God of new beginnings. You know, a few years ago, the IRS put out a program called the Fresh Start Initiative, right? And I remember uh, one of the um, older guys, he had been at the IRS for some 35 years, I think. And he said, you know, I don't like the term. I don't like the term. And uh, I was kind of new at the time. I thought, I don't know, I just, just assumed it was a good thing. And it is a good thing. But he said, I don't like the term, and here's why I don't like it. I don't like it because when people hear that term, they think their old debts are being wiped out. They think their old debts are being wiped out almost automatically. And that is not the case with the program, although there are some lovely things in the program to help the public. But I want to tell you that with God, your old debts can be wiped out. Did you know that? Your trespasses, your iniquities can be put away. Listen to this verse in Colossians chapter 2. It's a beautiful verse. I tried to memorize it, but it just wasn't quite there. In you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. A new beginning with God. A fresh start, if you will. It is true for those who have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be, as the Bible would say, literally born again. A new beginning, a new start. It is so real that it is actually a being born again. The Lord Jesus Christ said that himself. Unless a man is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. You want to talk about a new beginning, a fresh start. That's a new beginning. If any man be in Christ, the scriptures say, he is a new creation. Indeed, old things have passed away and all things have become new. What a fresh start. And for those who know the Lord Jesus, like myself and have for many years, God also offers, if you will, a fresh start. His mercies are new 
Every morning, the scriptures say, we can come to him in a way with a sincere heart and confess our sins and receive from him a fresh start, a new beginning every day with God. Why? Because his grace is that deep. His grace is that deep. His grace is far greater than all our sin. It is never a question of God's ability to forgive sin, to give you a new beginning. It's always just a question of the sincerity of the heart. Do you really want a new beginning? Do you really want to forsake that that old life or those sins that continue to beset you? God is always able to forgive. Where sin abounded, Romans 5 says, grace did much more abound. There is something tremendous with God. It is a fresh start, a new beginning, and that's exactly what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 9. But it requires something from you and me, and you already know what it is. A sincere heart of confession. Do you really want to change? If you do, if you've come under conviction by the the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and you want to change, then let's confess it, brothers and sisters. The Scriptures say in 1 John 1 that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a wonderful thing, that I can come and confess my sins. That was written to believers, I think. Sometimes we use it in an evangelistic sense, and uh, that may be true to some, some extent as well. But to the believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But do you want it? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to put away those old things? that have uh, entangled you, that have taken your eyes off the Lord Jesus. A sincere confession. And so uh, what we're going to find in uh, Nehemiah in chapter 9 is a people that were serious about their sin and serious about their confession. There are four S's that I'm going to give to you from Nehemiah chapter 9. Some of them the Lord gave to me. Some of them the Lord gave to others, and I took as my own. (laughs) And they are this. The people were serious. They were sincere. They were scriptural. And they were specific. They were serious. So when we look at this prayer of confession, what we're going to find is a people who were serious about their sin. They were also sincere in their repentance. They were scriptural. You read this prayer, and it's a prayer that is uh, balanced with the word of God. They go back to creation and come all the way forward. And they were specific. And we're going to consider each of these just briefly. Look at what it says in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. This was a solemn occasion, a serious occasion. The people were fasting, the Bible says. They had sackcloth and ashes. These were all outward manifestations of what we believe we see as a sincere inward reality. They were very serious about their sin. Fasting, of course, is a very serious thing. Um, Whereas in the scriptures, feasting is often associated with joy, with, with progress, with successes. Fasting is associated with mourning, with losses, with trials, 
This was the type of occasion that people realized their sin. And so they took it very seriously. They were fasting with sackcloth and ashes. Uh, I, I don't know how often we take sin quite this seriously, but we ought to. Sin is a very serious, serious thing. Someone gave the illustration, and I thought it was somewhat comical, but somewhat helpful as well. They said sin is serious, not like the young boy who, who wanted a bicycle. And so he said, oh God, I, I want a bicycle. He, and he's telling, he's telling his pastor this. He says, I, I want a bicycle. I told the Lord this, but I know he doesn't work that way. So I went out and took the bicycle, and then I asked him for forgiveness. Well, that's not much of a seriousness of sin, is it? We need to take sin seriously. The people understood that their sin was an offense to God. You know what David said in Psalm 51 and verse 4? He said, against you and you only have I sinned. First and foremost, the people here recognized that their sin was an offense to God. Now later we're going to find out that not only is sin an offense to God, and this stands true today, but it also is a great a great uh, burden to God's people. It's enslaving. It's burdening. It's an awful thing. The people were very serious about their sin. It says those of Israel, Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, there's lots that could be said here. We can't go into all of the details of it. But the bottom line is that they set aside a time and a place and they put everything else aside down to the very essentials, the food that they ate, in order to take this opportunity to confess their sins to God. And here it was among one another as well. It says, uh, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord, their God. It says, then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. Brothers and sisters, if we're serious about sin if we recognize the severity of it, it should lead to sincere confession. We cannot, I would suggest that we cannot sincerely confess sin that we don't take seriously. If we don't think sin is a serious thing, uh, uh, that sin is death, one said that, that they were dead serious about their sin because sin is deadly serious. And that is true. They took their sins so seriously. And in order to have a sincere confession before God, we've got to take our sin seriously. Now, I couldn't look into the people's heart there that day. Even by looking at the scriptures, I can't see their heart. But they certainly had all the outward manifestations of seriousness and of sincerity. It says that they, they stood and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then they go on into this prayer. They're fasting. They have sackcloth, ashes. They're all together in one place. They've put aside everything else and they're shouting to the Lord their God. There was a seriousness and a sincerity to their sin. Brothers and sisters, if we want to receive forgiveness from God, we've got to come with a sincere heart. Look, we all know this, right? Uh, I've experienced this in my marriage. I'm assuming many have. I, I offer a, a word of apology for something I've done. And, you know, there may be a hesitation on the part of my wife. Why? Because she may question the sincerity of it. My kids know this. Listen, my kids offend one another, 
and then we'll, you know, go through our process and, and, and try to, you know, identify what's been done wrong, and then we'll ask for, you know, now, you know, you what you should be doing. Sometimes they do it on their own, but oftentimes, you know what they say? I don't think they really care. Here my brother or sister is apologizing to me, and I don't think they're really sincere. That's what they're saying. I don't think they really care. I don't think they really care about what they've done. We all know the need for sincerity. You could say it was not like the man who slipped into the priest's confession booth. And he said to the priest, you know, I need to confess uh, because I've been stealing my neighbor's hay. And the priest says to him, well, how much have you stolen? And the man says to him, well, I might as well confess the whole lot because I'm planning on going back tonight to take the rest of it. That is not sincere confession. That is not sincerity of heart. Do you really care about your sin? Do you really care about what you have done as an offense toward God? Are you willing to sincerely confess? Listen to these words. One preacher said, True repentance begins with knowledge of sin. It goes on to work sorrow for sin. It leads to confession of sin. It shows itself by a thorough breaking off from sin. It results in producing a deep hatred for sin. Brothers and sisters, I think that's a very accurate description of sincere repentance, of a sincere confession. It is not just a willy-nilly, well, I'm sorry for what I've done, but it is a sincere confession that what we've done has offended God. It's put ourselves in slavery and we uh, need to come clean. As one man said, you've got to fess up to the mess up before you can get cleaned up. You've got to fess up to the mess up before you can get cleaned up. So not only was it sincere, but it was scriptural. We can't go through it, but it's a tremendous thing to read this prayer. As the, the uh, well, some believe it was Ezra that was praying. It seems it may have been a group of them, but they recount God's faithfulness from creation all the way to their time there. They pray the scripture. They also uh, go through the attributes of God as they go through the prayer. They consider God's faithfulness, the way that God has created. He's called. He's chosen. He makes covenants. He's righteous. He sees. He hears. He reveals. He knows. He delivers. He leads. He visits. He commands. He gives. And in verse 17, he is gracious and merciful and ready to pardon. It was a scriptural prayer as well. They were serious They were sincere. It was a scriptural prayer, and it was a specific prayer. We need to be willing to identify the things that we have done wrong toward God, right? It doesn't work with one another if we just come and throw a willy-nilly offer of apology, right? We want to know that we understand what it is we have actually done wrong, where we have actually gone wrong, what we have actually done to confess it to the Lord, And they were specific about their sins. Listen to what it says in Nehemiah 9 and verse 18. He says, even when they made a molded calf for themselves, they were specific. In verse 26, he says, uh, they say, nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them. They were specific about their sin. Verse 29 says, uh, later on in the verse, at the end of verse 29, but sinned against your judgments, which, is, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrug their shoulders, stiffen their necks, and would not hear. They recognized the pride of their forefathers in their own pride. They were specific in their confession. One gave, a, I thought, a, again, a comical but tremendous example. 
They said specificity in sin. We cannot whitewash sin. Like the family that wanted to book, put a book of the family's history together. And they commissioned a professional biographer to do the job. But they told the biographer that they had a bit of a skeleton in the closet. We have a black sheep in the family. It's our Uncle George. He was executed on the electric chair for murder. To which the biographer replied, Oh, don't worry about that a bit. I'll take care of it so that there's no embarrassment. In fact, here's what I'll say. I'll say that Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his job by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. We must be specific about our sin. We cannot whitewash what we've done. This is where the people of God were. They were a broken people. We know from Psalm 51 that God desires a broken spirit and a contrite heart. This is where we need to be, in sincere confession to the Lord. Do you really want to change? Let's be specific about what we've done. Let's be sincere. Take the sin seriously. And certainly, let's balance it all with the scriptures. So, uh, they... They confess their sins. And uh, it's a tremendous thing because we know that God is a God of forgiveness. A God of forgiveness. We already mentioned in verse 17, they acknowledge these words at the end of Nehemiah 9 and verse 17. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. This is the God they were praying to a God of forgiveness, a God who has grace that is greater than all our sin. But they didn't stop there, you know. After the confession, in chapter uh, 10 of Nehemiah, we find that there was a commitment to the Lord. And I need to just forward this, uh, these slides here. I've only got just one from last week. And um, it was the key phrases. If we could, you would just forward that for me. It's going to be about seven clicks, I would guess to get forward through it. The key phrase is in these chapters uh, 7 through 13. So it says this, in fact, I'm sorry, but look at the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 says, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So they say, we're going to make a sure covenant with you, Lord. It is this serious to us that we're not only convicted about it, we're going to confess it and we're going to make some renewed commitments. It says this in verse 29 of chapter 10 of Nehemiah. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. Here the people of God now call him the Lord Jehovah our Lord. They have taken back upon themselves the place of servant to master. The Lord Jehovah, our Lord, Adonai, master. He is now, he is our master. They had forgotten this. They were a wayward people. Perhaps there are some here today who have been far off from the Lord, doing their own things, so to speak, living in the ways of the world, whatever that may be to you. But God is a God of forgiveness. You can come back and place yourself under subjection. We know he is Jehovah, the mighty God. But is he your Lord, your Adonai, your master? That's what the people were doing here at this time. They were renewing their commitments to the Lord. Listen, if we want to overcome sin, if we don't want to find ourselves back in the same place over and over, and I recognize there's such a balance with this, 
because we do end up sometimes in the same sins. And I'm not just trying to discourage you. I'm speaking to my own heart. We need to be willing to make practical commitments about how we're going to go about avoiding these pitfalls again, right? I mean, if I, if I come under conviction that I should be with the Lord's people, well, uh, number one, I need to confess that to the Lord. Lord, I, I, I want to be with your people and I haven't been with them. I have other priorities. I have other things that take place. But it goes beyond that, right? There has to be uh, uh, not just an emotional response, but a rational commitment, a, a well-thought-out commitment. How is it that I'm going to make adjustments in my life so that I can, I can act upon these convictions, so that I can recommit myself to the Lord, so that I can do the things that he would have me to do. And that's exactly what the people do. It says that they, they're pledging to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. And then we're going to find in chapter 11, or chapter 10, excuse me, their pledge concerns things that they would do and things that they would not do. And it's just a very simple breakdown but the same is true in our lives, right? There are going to be various things that we need to pledge to commit to do and not to do. And what we find in Nehemiah 11 is that their commitments concern at least three areas. At least three areas. They're the areas of, uh, if you want to say, marrying, buying, and tithing, or marrying moments and money. They're going to go through things. Well, first of all, they had gone and, and married off sons and daughters to pagan nations. This marriage covenant commitment that God had instituted and he had commanded them, they knew they weren't supposed to be doing this, intermarrying with pagan nations, but they did. And so they're going to come under conviction and recognize that we should be committing this aspect of our life to him. And Marriage, well, we just had a tremendous seminar on marriage, but the priority of it, that we should be committing this area of our life to him. Okay, it's a covenantal relationship between myself and another. It should not be, uh, uh, again, a willy-nilly type thing, but a commitment to the Lord. I'm committing this to him. The people here, they recognized they had intermarried. They had done all kinds of atrocious things, just mixing with the nations around them. They had given away their sons and daughters. They had other priorities. That's the bottom line. They did not have the Lord Jehovah as their Lord Master. They did as they pleased. And so, in verse... Uh, 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 twenty thirty. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. And then they go on uh, to make some other commitments regarding tithing and regarding the Sabbath. They had taken that Sabbath day that God had instituted, a day of rest, a day of reflection. God knows you better than you know you. God knows me better than I know me. He knew the people of God needed this. But in there, I could only assume greed and lack of priorities. They had gone into a seven-day work week, so to speak. They were buying and selling and doing all kinds of transactions on the Sabbath day, a direct violation of what God had given to them. They took that day, which was to be holy, set apart to God, and they just mixed it in with the rest of them, and it just became a part of their everyday lives, so to speak. And you know, the Lord has given us commands, things that should be set apart to him. We have a day, we act upon the principles of the New Testament. Acts 20 says that, when, that uh, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, 
They came together on the first day of the week. We've kind of hallowed a day, so to speak. I think the Lord has for him. We should take it seriously. We should be desiring. Our heart's desire should be to have a part in it, to, to, to be there, to be present. The people had done all kinds of evils. They had, uh, for, they had uh, done away with what, what God had asked for as far as tithing. Their, their, their marriages, their, their, moment, their money, their moments, they, they weren't doing what they ought to do. Their money had become their own. They were prospering. They were doing their own things. They were within pagan nations, and they uh, were a failure uh, by the, the standard of the word of God. This is where the people were. And so they renewed their commitments to the Lord. We must be willing to do the same. They also set aside first fruits, the scriptures say, they began to pledge all the first fruits of their lives, really, their produce, their progress, their children. All of it was going to be, the first part of it was going to belong to the Lord. It's a tremendous principle that we can carry forward to our lives. The Lord Jesus said, right, seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. We should be willing to do the same. There's lots that could be said there, um, but we have a few other things to consider. So I just want to make sure this is very clear because this is what the Lord really convicted me of. Chapter 8, conviction under the word of God. Chapter 9, they didn't just wander away. They confessed their sins seriously, specifically, and uh, uh, in sincerity. And then chapter 10, they uh, offer a renewed commitments to the Lord. They were this serious. Now, I recognize that these types of things take a serious sacrifice from the Christian, right? I mean, if we're going to give the Lord the first place, if we're going to renew our commitment, so to speak, to rededicate ourselves to the Lord, it comes at a cost. That's not hidden in Scripture. The Lord Jesus, I mean, time and time again would remind people of the cost of discipleship. Do you really want to follow him? Do you really want to be his disciple? It comes at a great cost. There are going to be things in life that we must be willing to lay on the altar, so to speak, as sacrifices to him so that we can give him that commitment, that dedication, the first place in our lives to offer, so to speak, the first fruits. And that's exactly what they were doing. I think there's an additional lesson that goes on from that. In chapter 11, if there's one key phrase that I find in chapter 11, the Lord has laid on my heart, it's found uh, in verse 2. Well, let's read verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. So what's happening is that the wall has been rebuilt. I want to get back to just a little bit of history for a minute. The wall has been rebuilt. The city is now secure, so to speak, but it's not populated. And so the, the leadership is trying to encourage people to come back to the land. But this would require from them a tremendous sacrifice. Remember, they were in captivity for 70 years. Some of these people were born into captivity. They were born into a pagan land, a pagan nation. And no doubt they had lives, they had marriages, they had jobs, they had positions. Well, look, Nehemiah himself was a cupbearer to a pagan king, right? He was an Israelite, but he had a position of somewhat of prominence there. 
And there were lots of others. Daniel ended up in a position of prominence and so forth. So they're trying to call people back to, to, to God's house, so to speak, to the land, uh, the promised land. And uh, it would be a huge sacrifice. So it seems that not many were coming. They called one out of ten. But it says this in verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. I want to suggest to you, and I think this will ring true in your heart, there is almost nothing more beautiful than the willing heart. The one who wants to do what the Lord would have them to do. Or for that matter, in practical relationships, the one who wants to do what we would want them to do in a marriage relationship, in a family relationship, there's not much more beautiful than a child who willingly serves in the home. A husband and wife who willingly serve one another. I want to give you an illustration that the Lord uh, laid on my heart and has actually used uh, to teach me. A few weeks ago, um, we had a marriage seminar, and I was talking to Steve Price, who was here. And he said, uh, you know, he wants to preach a sermon one day on lessons I learned from my children. That's what he said. I want to preach a sermon one day, and I'm working on it. Lessons I learned from my children. I have five children that God has blessed me with, and they're wonderful. Each in their own way. They have their different personalities, their different strengths and weaknesses. Um, of course, they come with lots of work and and uh, lots of trouble as well, lots of things to deal with, but they're wonderful. They're a blessing from the Lord. My third in line is Violet, and I want to use her just as a brief illustration. Okay, Violet, um, well, she's a wonderful little girl. She just turned six yesterday, and uh, I went to breakfast with her, and, you know, her face just radiates with joy almost all the time. She has her hard moments, don't get me wrong, but I'll gloat a little bit. She radiates with joy. She giggles at the things I say. She smiles at me. She is such a joy to me. I mean, if there was anything that I felt like she really needed, I would do whatever I could to give it to her. Violet is a willing servant in our home, and, and mostly she's a willing servant to me. You know, when I come home from work, she will almost always remove whatever burdens are in my hand, keys, wallet, whatever it is. She's just there just to receive whatever I have. Uh, she will lay out my clothes for me. Here she picks out shorts and a shirt hardly ever matches, but that's okay. She lays it out for me, and she, she willingly serves me. She will, she will often remove the shoes from my feet. She does. And I'm not exaggerating. This is true. Making some of you want to have more children, right? <laughs> she, re- she removes the socks from my feet, something that not many would dare to do. She's a wonderful, willing servant. And the Lord spoke to me at one point. You know, number one, why is it that she's such a willing servant of yours? Why does she serve you in that way? With zeal, with fervor, with joy. Why does she serve you like that? And the answer is, well, I presented it to my other kids after the Lord had kind of spoken to me this way. I used her as an example, and I asked the rest of the kids, why do you think Violet serves in such a a wonderful way? And much the whole household, but especially to me. And Olivia, my oldest, she said, I'll tell you, because she loves you. Because she loves you. That was her exact words. And I said, exactly. That's exactly right. What the Lord showed me is that she is a willing, zealous cheerful servant of mine and of the household because she loves me, 
because she adores me. So when we look at the people of God, and this is what the Lord said to me, Michael, the reason why you don't serve me the way you ought is because you don't love me the way you ought. If you adored me like I ought to be adored, well, you would serve me as I ought to be served. That's the reality. The Lord Jesus himself said this in John 14, he who has my commandments and does them, it is he who loves me. We don't run around doing the commandments so much to show him we love him. But if we love him, he says, he says, the man who loves me, he will keep my word. That's the reality. And so when I look at Violet in my life, and the Lord just used her as an illustration to me, she's got lots of issues. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying she's in any way perfect. But she willingly serves me, cheerfully, joyfully, zealously serves me because she adores me, because she loves me. And the Lord said to me, the reason why you don't serve me in that way is because you don't love me. And the scriptures support this. We just heard the words of the Lord Jesus. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. What a challenge. The Lord wants willing hearts. Listen, the church, the people of God, we need willing hearts. But why is it we're not willing? Why don't we want to serve the Lord? Why don't we want to be with the Lord's people? Why don't we want to keep his commands? I'm going to suggest to you from the scripture, and I'm not trying to offend you, but it's not the lack of ability, brothers and sisters. It's a lack of love, a lack of love. The Lord has shown me in my life and through his word that so often when I don't do the things that I should be doing, it's not a lack of ability. It's a lack of adoration, a lack of love. People do what people want to do. You've heard that said before. My dad loves that saying. He says it to me often. Ah, people do what people want to do, you know, and that's the reality. Listen, there may be few exceptions to this. I know there at times are people who want to be with the Lord's people, but circumstances disallow them. I understand that health or, or whatever it may be, job or whatever it is. There are people who may want to be out preaching the gospel, but their body just doesn't allow them to. The Lord understands that. But the reality is, is that so much of the time in our life, it's not a lack of ability. It's a lack of love. It's a lack of adoration. If I really loved and adored him, I would do the things that he wants me to do. I would keep his commandments. I would follow his word. I would, I would disciple my family. Listen, there have been many times that the Lord has said to me, you're not discipling your family. You're not investing in them. You're not spending time teaching them. And I have a list of excuses. You do too. I know it. We all present them, right? When the elders present something to us, well, I've got this and I've got that and you don't understand. I've got lands and marriage and things and a job and all these things that... But we do really what we want to do. Oftentimes, there are things that could be laid on the altar in sacrifice to him so that we could do the things that he wants us to do, the things that we should be doing if we loved and adored him. And so I'm suggesting to you that we need to take time to, to get to know him, to grow that love for him. I think it is mutual in the sense where the more we serve him, the more we love him, the more we love him, the more we serve him. I think there's some truth to that. But at the heart of it, uh, you could say that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. If you want to serve him, your heart needs to be in love with him. You need to adore him. How can you adore him if you never spend time with him? How can you, how can you love him if you don't know what he's done for you, if you don't really understand it? 
And so as the people went through Nehemiah chapter 9 and they confessed their sins, they recalled the faithfulness of God. They said, we have failed here, we have failed here, but you remained faithful. You were merciful, you were gracious. Brothers and sisters, do you take time, do I take time to do that? That's similar to what we do here on Sunday mornings. I hope you don't miss it. We come together to remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us. He paid the price. He paid the debt. He did not owe. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. He's paid it all for me. And because of that, I should love him. I should adore him. And if I love him and adore him, then certainly I would be serving him, right? We see it in young marital relationships and dating relationships. Just the love is overflowing. I can't help but buy her flowers and sing her songs and do all these things because I love her, because I adore her. And this is exactly the way it should be with the Lord. The people blessed those men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. These were people who gave up land, position, prestige maybe in a foreign land to come and to dwell at Jerusalem. Would you and I be willing to to move for the Lord's work if he called us to? Maybe the Lord has something going somewhere he wants you to be involved with. Or maybe an even more pertinent question, would I be willing to stay to be here if the Lord would have me to? You know, many people have gone and moved away from this assembly or from other wonderful, God-glorifying, Christ-serving ministries and they've never found a resting place. They've moved away because the grass is greener, so to speak, a better position, a better life, whatever it is, lower cost of living, better schools, and all these things. But they've left the work of the Lord. They've sacrificed the work of the Lord, God's people, for that, for, for, for these things that, oh, may, they may be okay. But here were people that gave up position and land and prestige to come place themselves in Jerusalem to serve the Lord willingly. Isn't that a wonderful thing? My kids quoted a verse this morning, and as you could imagine, they quoted it because I wanted them to quote it, and I thought it was a wonderful verse. (laughs) Paul says, and I bear witness in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 3, and I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. He's talking in terms of financial giving, and certainly that's a major part of it, we could apply that to any aspect of life. I bear witness that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. You know what? When I look at Violet in my life, she is so willing to serve me, it goes beyond her own ability at times. She will, like I'll mention something, and she's like, oh, I'll do it. And I'm like, no, don't do it. You can't lift that. That's way too big for you. She is so willing to serve according to her ability and beyond her ability here in 2 Corinthians. So there were people that they had such a heart for the Lord. They said, we'll just do it. We don't even know how we're going to do it. We don't even have the ability to give in this way, but we're going to give and give willingly because we love you, Paul, and we love the Lord. We love his work. Oftentimes with Violet, you know, I feel so unworthy. Like when she's taking my socks off, I just feel like I, this is not right, you know. She's taking the socks off my feet. I feel unworthy. King David had some men in Second Samuel that treated him that way. And, uh, you know, he just mentioned the word, I would like a, a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem, which was occupied by enemies. And three men went and they risked their lives 
to bring to David seemingly just a small request. They were so willing. He didn't even ask them to do it. He just mentioned that he would like it, and they went and they did it. And remember what he did? I feel like this oftentimes. He took the water, and he said, I can't even drink this. This has got, like, their their blood is on this. They could have died getting me this water. And he dumps it out because he said, basically, I'm not even worthy, as I understand it, to take this water. I feel like that oftentimes myself. But we have a God who is so worthy. He is so worthy. We could never give him more than we ought to give him. We could never do it. We could never outgive his worthiness. We could never outserve him. Can you believe? We can't. Of all he's done for us and of who he is, as they go through Nehemiah 9, they say, You're the creator. You delivered us from, from, from Pharaoh in Egypt. You've given us your statutes, your commandments, your laws. We continue to fail throughout Judges and you continue to deliver us. He is so worthy because of who he is and because of what he's done. He is so worthy. I'm not worthy of what Violet does for me. King David recognized he was not worthy of what his three mighty men did for him. But the Lord Jesus is so worthy of our love of our adoration, of our servitude, we could never outgive his worthiness. Isn't that true? There, we could never outgive his, we could never serve beyond what he is worthy of being served. What a tremendous God we serve. What a tremendous privilege we have to be called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, to be able to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. What a tremendous truth. The people blessed those men who willingly gave themselves or offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. What are we willing to do? And our time is gone. There's two more chapters. Uh, chapter 12, there, I'm just going to just, we just mentioned this last week, we're going to mention it very briefly. It says, The joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. When we get a hold of what the Lord has done for us, the joy should seep from us. I'm speaking to my own heart. It doesn't always. Joy doesn't seep out of me. People can't hear oftentimes or see the joy in my life. But when we really get a hold of his worthiness and what he's done for us, there's a sense in which our joy should be heard afar off. Sometimes, you know, we sit in the meetings and, you know, to be honest, we could do a little better. We could sing a little louder. I think if we really, really cared, if we really loved him, we would sing with all of our hearts. We would praise with all of our hearts. We would want to be here, to be with the Lord's people. I love hearing lovely voices like the Bosworths, but I'd like for them to be drowned out so I don't hear them over here. You know, not because I don't want to hear them, but I'd like for the, for the volume to be so loud. And it is at times, but it's not always. We need to be reminded of what he's done so that the, the joy would just overflow from us. And you know what it says there? That everyone was there. The men were there, and, and, uh, and sorry for not giving the reference, but uh, Nehemiah 12 and verse... I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Nehemiah 12 and verse 43, it says the men, the women, and the children, they were all there praising God, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. That's a beautiful thing. We should seep with joy. People should see it. People should hear it. I'll close with one quick story. I, uh, I've been married for 12 years, and um, we were married, and you know when you get married, there are some things you obviously have to get used to with one another. Well, one of the things that I like to do is I like to sing. I love to sing. I don't do it well, but I love to sing. And I'm not even saying that I love to sing for all the right reasons. Sometimes I think I, think I sing out of a nervous habit. Sometimes I think I sing just because I have nothing else to do. 
But, but songs just tend to just radiate in my mind, you know? So right after we were married, um, you know, we, it was a, a busy day. Uh, things were kind of loud in the house, you know? And uh, I'm singing, probably not paying attention to the needs of my wife or to the needs of the household, doing whatever I'm doing, you know? And uh, she says to me something like, and she's given me permission to say this, you know, we all have our moments. But she said to me something like this. She said, so will you, will you not, will you stop? Why are you always singing? And by God's grace, I don't know, I just replied like this. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. And of course, she didn't appreciate that at all. But that is, that is the reality. And I, brothers, I'm not saying that this was in my heart. Okay, I'm not saying that I sing because my heart is always in tune with the Lord. But, but this should be the reality of the believer. We should be singing because we're happy. I know we have sufferings. I know we have trials. But if you've been saved, he saved me. What a joy. And he's coming back for me one day. What a joy. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Whom having not seen, you love. Though yet now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We sang a hymn last week that went like this. But oh, the hope of being forever with the Lord, the joyful hope of seeing that face for us so marred. It fills our hearts with comfort. It fills our lips with praise so that amidst our sorrows, a joyful song we raise. Can we be joyful in sorrows? We can be. I'm not always. I should be. But we should be by God's grace. He's given us so much to be joyful for. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the ability to look into your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is to know you, whom to know is life eternal. Help us, Lord, we pray, that we would walk by faith in you, that we would be, as we come under conviction from the word of God, willing to lay it at your altar in confession. Lord, help us as we need to at times renew our commitments to you. We have so much going on. Lord, you know the busyness. We know the Lord Jesus was here. He was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. We want to recommit ourselves to you, this assembly and individually, that we would love and serve you wholeheartedly. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help us not to leave this place. Lord, as you've burdened my heart, help me not to walk away from your word and forget all the things that you've taught me. Help us, Lord, we pray. You are so worthy, Lord, of our adoration, so worthy of our praise, so worthy of our servitude. Help us, Lord, we pray, to serve you as you ought to be served, to love you as you ought to be loved. We give you thanks for the blessing that it is, the joy to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.